How's it going, everybody? Aloha and welcome back to the Brick House for another edition of Bo's Football Final here at KHON2.com. And everywhere you listen to podcasts, I'm your host, Rob DeMello. And joining me this week, my Spectrum Sports partner, my big little bro, former University of Hawaii offensive lineman, RJ Hollis. And RJ, that game at Aloha Stadium on Saturday night with the Rainbow Warriors beating New Mexico 39-33 to improve the 2-1 and one on the season. Had a little bit of everything as the Bows fell behind 20-7 in the very first half. But of course, Bows able to come back, get that victory. We have a lot to talk about, the individual performances, some of the units and how they performed. So much to get into, but first things first, biggest takeaway from that game at Aloha Stadium. Well, I think the biggest takeaway is that this team has so much to show. They got so much potential, and I think they're just beginning to scratch the surface. For the first two and a half games, no passing touchdowns, not that many big plays. In the first half, it seemed like it was going to be more of the same, and then there's the big play to Nick Mardner, and after that, it was almost like the floodgates just kind of opened up both offensively and defensively for this Hawaii football team. So I think now that they got, you know, that sort of second-half mojo where they seeing okay, we really can control a game if we want to. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how they're going to take that momentum going forward. Yeah, and like I said, we have a lot to talk about in regards to the players and what they were able to do against New Mexico. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about the vibe at Aloha Stadium because that was wild, man. That was interesting. You and I both work in the Spectrum Sports broadcast. And for me personally, you know, in that pregame show, I'm locked in on the camera and I'm looking at the camera the whole time and we're going through our show. And so I have a little preview screen. I have my camera that I'm looking at the whole time. And so when we sign off after that 45 minute show, that was my first chance to really turn around and look at the stadium. And man, that was bizarre to have no fans in attendance. You had the piped in music. You could hear everything that was going on in the field. Uh, put yourselves in the shoes of the football players that were playing on Saturday night. Uh, how bizarre was that? No, most definitely. And, and kudos to the guys, you know, being able to come out and, you know, there always used to be jokes back in the day about there being a bunch of orange empty seats and, you know, <laughs> how it's only half capacity, but you got to understand with a stadium that holds 50,000 Aloha stadium is one of the biggest in the Mount West, if not, you know, in all of mid-major conferences. So to come in and see that much of a large, you know, stadium, knowing you have a game, this is your home opener and nobody's there, but the music's still loud. And to me, the biggest, like, mind trick was that there was crowd noise being pumped through the speakers. And I don't, I mean, oh, that kind of, that threw me off even as an analyst. Like, not even being a player was weird, hearing people cheer, but then turn and, like, see an empty stadium. So uh, kudos to those guys for being able to go through it, man. Because you know me, you remember when I played, I was very much a crowd guy, very much a cheering with the bottom row, you know, trying to get everybody up out of their seats. So, I mean, I, it was a creepy feeling. It's weird, you know, seeing an empty stadium, but the fact that they were able to, you know, knock that out and, and be able to get a W, kudos to them. Now, one of the things we talked about in the pregame show was BYOJ, bring your own juice because there is no energy from the crowd. And uh, ultimately, the University of Hawaii able to do that. Uh, they came out flat, as we mentioned, down 20 to 7 in the first quarter. But uh, thanks in part to Shevin Cordero and his performance, especially in the second half where he was nearly flawless in the third and fourth quarter, only two incompletions after halftime. He ends up finishing 33 of 43. 
for a career-high 410 yards passing, a career-high four touchdowns. He had five total touchdowns. I mean, you look at the overall picture, he had two interceptions. The first interception was one that we were all confused about as much as he was because it looked like pretty obviously that New Mexico went off sides. Uh, everyone involved thought it was a free play. The offensive lineman didn't even move. Shevin throws it up. It gets picked off, and there was no flag on the ground. And then right before halftime where – Todd Graham talked about it after the game. Shevin was trying to do a little bit too much where they were looking to score. If they had to get a field goal, then they would have taken that. But Shevin trying to push the envelope and trying to get into the end zone, he throws an interception. And But overall, Shevin Cordero's performance against New Mexico and how important he was to that team, to that offense, uh, what, what would you say about that? Uh, I mean, you know, for the longest time, we knew Shevin could ball. I mean, ever since a true freshman, his UNLV 21-point fourth-quarter comeback. I mean, even before that, when he was the 2017 Cover 2 Marcus Mariota Award winner. My guy. I mean, this kid's been doing stuff for a long time in the state of Hawaii, and now it's his turn. The one thing we saw in the first two and a half – I mean, realistically, the first two and a half games, because even in the first half, it seemed very much like they were not allowing him to take the reins. They weren't allowing him to really, you know, let loose. Granted, we all know Shevin's an even kill game manager guy that could sit on the lead and get you out of there with a W. But let's not forget, you know, this kid's got a rocket. You know, for the longest time, he's been able to have that run and shoot with them nine routes where he can let it go. And I felt like, you know, once they really let Shevin start doing his thing, granted, you know, it felt like maybe he was trying to do too much. But in the excitement of the game, finally getting that control, you you do want to do that. And even though it may seem a little risky, you want to see that out of your quarterback because, you know, that's somebody that will take it upon themselves to get whatever they need to get done for the offense. So I think once they let Shevin open up, once you started to see those deep passes to Zion Bowens, to Calvin Turner, that's when you kind of started to see him have his flow, Joe. And I think if they continue to let him have that, continue to trust in Shevin and what he could do, this is an offense that could be very deadly, you know, as far as passing goes and, and just having a system, uh, offense that they can trust and a leader that they can get behind in Shevin. And truth be told, Shevin Cordero was able to do what he did and with being under constant pressure. I mean, throughout the entire game and a lot of credit needs to go to New Mexico. Rocky Long, the longtime New Mexico coach, and then went over to San Diego State. That's where a lot of us know him as uh, for more recent years of being the head coach of the Aztecs running that base system that he does that's very complicated and and very confusing to not only quarterbacks, because that's what a lot of people look at. It's like, oh, that defense is so confusing the quarterbacks, confusing the offensive linemen as well. And you know that more than anybody. So uh, definitely Shevin being able to accomplish what he did through that kind of pressure is impressive, but obviously able to find comfort in his playmakers goes a long way. And you could see as the game developed, Shevin's comfort level in throwing the ball grew because he knew that he had Nick Martiner, Jared Smart, Dayday Hunter, Rico Bussey, Melky Stovall, Zion Bowens, Calvin Turner, Miles Reed, Lincoln Victor, all catching passes. Nine different receivers caught passes on Saturday night. You had 10 targeted. Aaron Cephas gets two balls thrown to him in the end zone, one of them very close to being a touchdown. So tell me about the playmakers the, the supporting cast, if you will, for this UH offense uh, and, and how they rose to the occasion when they were needed most against the Lobos. 
Well, one thing I could tell you for sure is prior to this game, we didn't really know they were there. Like I said, there wasn't too much, oh, let's, you know, open up the offense. Let's get it going. I mean, these guys can ball because let's not forget two of the touchdowns that were scored against New Mexico. They don't catch the ball in the end zone. Nick Martiner makes two guys miss. Calvin Turner makes about four guys miss on his way to the end zone. So these are guys that if you just give them a nice open field, they can make it work. They can do what it do. Three different wide receivers average over 25 yards a catch. A catch. That means when they are letting the ball go, when these guys are getting the ball, it is a big play. Two and a half first downs is 25 yards. So when you are able to get chunk plays like that, you got Zion Bones going two catches for 82 yards and two touchdowns. That means every time he caught the ball, it was over 40 yards and it was a touchdown. So they got multiple guys that can do what needs to get done. And I'll tell you something, that Calvin Turner, he is definitely catching my attention the first on the team to have both a rushing and a receiving touchdown. But like I said, when he caught that ball at about midfield, it definitely just seemed like that was going to be a good 20 to 30 yard pass. And they were going to continue having to drive, go downfield. But this guy was not going to be denied the end zone, made more than a few miss on a very nice run all the way to the end zone. And knowing that you got that along with letting Shevin, you know, put the keys in the car, get in the driver's seat. That's something you should definitely be excited about. I mean, Lincoln Victor only got one catch, and we only we already know how electric this guy is. So if you got nine guys catching the ball, three guys going over 25 yards, Nick Martiner at almost 150 yards off six catches, we got pieces. It's a it's moves that can be made, and I think they're definitely starting to see that flow, Joe. I don't think they knew they had it offensively. But these weapons, they definitely see how useful they can be. And I think going forward, we're going to see a lot more use out of them. And looking at the numbers from the weapons, Nick Martiner, six catches, 147 yards and a touchdown. As you mentioned, Zion Bowens goes two catches, both for touchdowns, 82 yards. And of course, Jared Smart, six catches, 40 yards. And he has that amazing catch on the extra point, two points, uh, looking like his dad, Keith Smarter there on the basketball court. Vertical. Unbelievable. Look like you could jump over a Jeep. (laughs) And and when you look at what the offense was able to do, as we mentioned, they came out of the gates sputtering. And and a lot of that has to do with the inability to run the football against New Mexico. It goes back to, hey, two teams are playing. You got to give the Lobos credit. But when you look at Chevin Cordero is the leading rusher with 39 yards, there's a lot of respect to this running game because of the offensive line, because of what you had coming back from the O-line. And you'd be the first to say that the O-line with the amount of attention that they got coming into the season has not quite yet lived up to expectations, but you can have a game when you have eight carries, 29 yards out of day day Hunter, five carries, 28 yards out of miles Reed. And then you have Stovall and Turner both being handed the ball in some form uh, with play calls averaging a yard, two yards a carry. So the fact that they were not able to get things going early, how much of that falls on the offensive line, on the running game? And and how much of a concern is that? Because that's now two games in a row that you haven't seen the offense be able to start the game strong and you rely on the defense to keep them in it for, for as long as you can. 
Uh, I, I think it's a major concern. And I mean, you know, obviously, schematically, you got to be able to figure it out. But at the end of the day, it's concepts. You got to know how to match the blockers up to the guys that are getting blocked. And then the biggest thing after that is execution. The guys got to get off the ball. They got to be able to stick to blocks. You got to be able to set the tone, initiate the violence and impose your will. There's really nothing else to it. At the end of the day, you don't sign up to be an offensive lineman. You get chose to be an offensive lineman. Nine times out of 10, you wanted to be a D lineman. You wanted to be something else. They put you there. This what, is did you, what, what did you want to be? What did you want to be? <laughs> I wanted to be a D lineman. I yeah. had a really good bull rush, but I didn't have anything outside of that. And at the end of the day, like I always say, if it's third and one, I don't care if you run a air raid, a running shoot, power eye, whatever. Third and one, we run the ball and we get the first down and there's nothing else to it. At the end of the day, the running game has to be instilled in some way or form because not every team is going to allow what New Mexico allowed. Not every game is going to be as shootout stylistically as this game. There is going to be a time where you're going to either get up and need to control the clock with that lead or you're going to have to impose your will and get some violence going, which is going to start with the five big fellas up front, and they have to get it going. So I think right now they haven't got it figured out, but if they want to see themselves in championship contention, Miles Reed and these five offensive linemen have got to get it going. When you got guys like Il Manning getting attention and Gene Pryor getting attention and Taonga Tualima being on the Remington watch list, People want to see, okay, are you good as they say you are? Is the 121 starts as good as advertised? Not only that, you're returning from a conference championship. So nobody's coming into the game versus Hawaii like, oh, let's get this easy W. It's like, these are guys we need to beat if we want to better ourselves. And all of that starts with the violence up front. And in the offensive mindset, the offensive line has got to have that mentality that we are going to run the ball and we're not going to be denied. See, I always wondered, what, why are we brothers, man? What, what makes us soulmates like this? And I get it because you wanted to be a D lineman. They made you an O lineman. I didn't want to be a sportscaster because I grew up and I looked around and I was like, man, I am a lot smaller than everybody else. I better, I better learn how to talk about this stuff. Yeah, like, I can't be a nose right now. Yeah. Hey, so, you know, we talked about the struggles in the first half. Obviously, the defense has imparted to that. And Todd Graham made it very clear after the game was over on Saturday that, hey, they didn't play good enough. And he says that, hey, a lot of it is on him because in a normal season, as the year goes on, he's able to be like, oh, OK, well, we can add to what we've learned so far. We can we can add to this defense. But with the 2020 nature and being the, the practices not quite being the same as usual, uh, you not having as much time as you would in the off season that he felt that he maybe put too much on their, on their plate. And so obviously missed tackles, miscommunications, poor tackling uh, in, in that first half, which helped New Mexico build that lead. But we, we'd be lying if we didn't say hey, that second half, that defense played very good, very good. Um, so did you see what, what was the adjustment that you saw? Was it as simple as what Todd Graham is saying? If Hey, we just had to kind of to, to take some things off the plate uh, in regards to uh, what my defense is thinking about when they're out on the field? Or did you see a change in this defense coming out of the lockers? I think it was a little bit of both. You know, I think they kind of had the same uh, almost revelation that the offense had that 
you know, we, we got guys that can make plays and we kind of just have to put them in the position to where they can make the plays. I mean, when you look at Quentin Frazier being a guy that transferred uh, from Azusa Pacific as a DB, but now they have him playing everywhere. Darius Muasau is a stand-up linebacker, but they'll put him on the line. Pene Pavihi is a stand-up linebacker that they'll put on the line. You know, they kind of got to just put guys in the best position to make plays. And, you know, when you have COVID kind of hindering, you know, as you said, that one-on-one time, that FaceTime, those on-the-field practices where we can, you know, actually line guys up and see, okay, where do they fit? Where would they be good? Can we use them on a third down? Can we use them on, you know, stand-up? Do they like to blitz? Can they hit the gap hard? All these questions you kind of can't really figure out. And as the season's going, you start to see that the coaches are kind of figuring it out as we are. You know, they don't get as much time, and there wasn't as much availability. So, you know, the defense definitely is a work in art, but you see that second half – they started to pick it up. They got sacks. They got pressures. New Mexico was not moving nearly as fluid as they did in the first half. And I think, you know, similar to the offense going forward, they're going to figure out what pieces go where and how can we use them to best be successful. And some of those standouts on defense, you mentioned Darius Musau, 10 tackles, leading the team once again in tackles uh, with 10. Uh, he had a sack. Uh, and after the game, Todd Graham says that he has a chance to be uh, one of the best that I've ever coached. And that says a lot, especially when you look at Graham's track record and what he's accomplished in his dozen years as an FBS head coach. Uh, Quentin Frazier, as you mentioned, nine tackles, two and a half for a loss, and uh, essentially a game-sealing pick. He's been awesome through the first three games of his Rainbow Warrior career. And Corey Bethley with eight tackles, a tackle for loss, and uh, Cortez Davis has a tackle for loss for a second straight game. Uh, when you see what this team is built on, and, and that is the speed, the uh, versatility. They're, they're playing a, a kind of defense that's not very easy to, to plug and play, I imagine, right? No, mo most definitely not. And, I mean, you could see it kind of how with the lineups, with the positions that they got them playing, they got them all over the place. Quentin Frazier has gone from everywhere from stand-up linebacker to corner to covering slot to on the line, blitzing off the edge. You know, Corey Bethley is the same. You might catch him at a stand-up linebacker. You might catch him at safety. You might catch him covering the slot. So these are guys that obviously have the game instilled in here. You know, these are guys that kind of come out there and really have the instincts, really have the feel for it. So, you know, them being durable is, is ultra important because when you have one guy that – you know, is essentially playing three or four positions in a, in a very complex defense, you don't want to lose them because at the end of the day, the backup might only know one position or may only know, you know, two positions out of certain sets. You know, Todd Graham definitely has a system. You, you pointed it out the first game when we were watching it together against Fresno State. The defense just seemed very systemic. The turnovers that they got didn't seem, you know, like they just got their own luck. When they got the sacks, when they get the TFLs, it doesn't seem like this defense is just getting there purely on luck. It seems like these guys really are in tune with what they're doing on the field, and they're trying to, you know, meet somewhere in the middle with the scheme that Todd Graham wants to put in and make magic out of that. So, you know, he definitely has some pieces. I know he's trying to figure it out, but, you know, these guys being durable and being able to play the way they have and being able to play as many positions as they have, hats off to the guys they got in there. Because personnel-wise, I mean, they're just making it work with what they got.
You know, one thing that's interesting is last week in, in the media availability with Todd Graham, I had asked a question of, you know, it was more about the offense when you have so many plays that, that you know, Shevin Cordero overthrows a receiver, but the receiver has the step or Shevin puts it just an absolute dime, but the receiver drops it. And so, you know, these are plays that the X's and O's, they're working, but they're just not being converted. Does that give you more frustration or more optimism? And, and his answer was, well, I'm not frustrated because if you get frustrated in this business, that means you can't teach. And I love teaching. And so watching him on the sidelines in this game, it was evident. I mean, this guy loves coaching football because when the defense comes out onto the field, he's right there. I mean, he is in their face. He is coaching. He has the whiteboard. He's going to town while the offense is on the field. And, and that shows that he has a lot of trust in G.J. Kinney and Bo Graham and the offensive staff to be able to to handle things offensively because he is such a teacher on the defensive side of the ball. So it's really interesting to, to watch him do his thing. Um, it's one of the benefits from there being the empty stadium where usually I'd be on the sidelines uh, shooting the game as I do for KHON2 when we're done with our Spectrum stuff. Um, but being up in the stands and looking down, I was able to see that. So it was really interesting. And it was something that was brought up in our Bose Football Final Mailbox. But uh, obviously, we're, we're not getting to that question because I, I, I just burnt it right there. Way to go, Rob. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but of course, yeah, good, uh, again, 39-33, the final University of Hawaii beats New Mexico, improving the 2-1 on the season. Uh, but as mentioned, let's crack open the BFF mailbox. Uh, remember, you can send in all your questions to me on Instagram at Rob DeMello, on Twitter at Rob DeMello, K-H-O-N, and also on Facebook at Rob DeMello. And so our first question comes in from Sammy, who's asking, do you think that with the lighter and quicker defense that Graham has built, it will be impossible to stop any team's rushing attack in the Mountain West Conference? And I'll preface that by saying that for the second straight game, uh, University of Hawaii defense gives up over 200 yards rushing. Uh, but RJ, your thoughts on that? Do you think being light in the box the way that they are because of what we talked about, the durability, the versatility that Coach Graham has built for his defense that, you know, what we'll be seeing this all year long of teams be able to run on the University of Hawaii? Um, I, I think, it's, and it's like I said earlier, with the personnel they got, they're kind of making magic. But yeah, it, it's hard to stop any sort of run game, especially a solidified or solid run game when you only got two to three guys weighing over 275 on the field. At the end of the day, you know, there's not as many linemen out there at any given time than you would like to specifically stop a run. So I wouldn't say it would be impossible. However, it is going to be very difficult. The last two games, this team's given up over 500 yards rushing. So it's kind of been put out there that, you know, if you want to attack Hawaii, the run game is the way to do it. Um, but, you know, if they can get more linemen out there, if they can figure out a way to, you know, get Justice to vibe more involved, maybe a Dewan Matthews and, you know, put them in kind of more situations where they can be able to stop the run, still get some sort of pass pressure. I think that would be the best to kind of meet it in the middle because 500 yards rushing in two games, that, that's not a good sign for any defense. Do you wonder, though, that if it, it becomes a pick your poison kind of thing or or the defense was built? in order to survive for four quarters to where like, let's say that you had some defensive linemen that, that were more than capable of playing on the line. And maybe your pass rush gets a little bit better. Um, and you do that to, to slow down a running attack. 
what are the problems that are created on the back end though now when when you you have lighter guys that that are built to spread the field and to cover more ground uh do you do you feel like that todd graham is almost saying to opposing teams like okay you know i feel good that yeah we may give up yards but over four quarters my guys will be able to do what they did last night and that's an ugly first two quarters but by the third and fourth quarter when the offensive line, when the the running backs are starting to slow down a little bit, these guys are fresh because they are lighter, more athletic players. No, yeah, I think it's definitely, like I said, they're, they're making, you know, lemonade, good lemonade, because at the end of the day, they're getting wins with it. Um, I, I know there's a, a method to the madness. And, you know, when you have to kind of jeopardize speed for size, I think he knows when to do it. And at the end of the day, you know, figuring out he had that that firecracker in Chevin Cordero where now he maybe starts to see, okay, if I can score this fast, well, if you want to run the ball, that's all and fine. All you're going to do is eat up the clock and not give yourself enough time to, you know, really get your run game going. So, like I said, with, with the COVID coming and them not being able to figure out everything schematically, I think they're trying to put two and two together. You know, having a good – Run defense is great, but having a great offense that can score points quickly and kind of get it out of hand to kind of force the other team's hand to pass, that falls right into the hands and into the scheme of what Todd Graham is doing with his defense. All right, our next question comes in. Uh, I forgot to write the name down. I apologize <laughs> to whoever sent this in, but through two games, what is the identity of this team on both offense and defense? So, uh, I, I'm assuming more the the identity in regards to personality, or is it schematics? I mean, how, how do you want to answer this? I mean, right now, you know, honestly, throughout the first two and a half games, we had so many questions that we couldn't answer as analysts. It would be almost impossible to answer this question. But to whoever asked it, I will really say, watch the game versus San Diego State very closely. You got three games of film now. You got time to study. Shevin's now got the reins of the offense. The defense is starting to come into mesh with what they're going to do. I think this game coming up will definitely be able to show us a lot about this team, not only schematically and personnel-wise, but what we might be able to see going forward as far as longevity and talking about chip, uh, trips to the championship. All right. This one comes in from James. Uh, this one's funny. Why is it that Notre Dame – can have thousands of fans rush the field, but we can't have any fans at Aloha Stadium. And so I guess, uh, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Notre Dame upsets Clemson uh, on Saturday. The, the thousands of fans do rush the field to, to celebrate. Um, yeah, RJ, how do you want to take this? Because, I mean, the way I see it is that – uh, you that, you don't want you don't want to have what Notre Dame did happening here at the University of Hawaii. So it almost answers the question, but what's up, man? I mean, I don't see any team we beat except maybe Boise, where fans will rush the field. But it's a good question. You know, there's fifty thousand seats in Aloha Stadium, so if you just allow the season ticket holders in, there will be more than enough space. I feel to separate them. There's a lot of space, but when you see, you know, other people having fans at their stadium, 
UH just had to go play Wyoming, who had fans in their stadium. Fresno had the cardboard cutouts, but Wyoming had fans in their stadium. They're watching people with fans in their stadium. You know, I think in the sense of football, they, they got to try and figure out a way to get some fans in there. It's huge. It's bigger than any Mountain West venue that you're going to go to. And seeing that Notre Dame beat the number one team and all of a sudden COVID just didn't exist for that two and a half minutes, let them tell it by having all that green out there on the football field. I mean, I think they got to figure out some way to do it. You know, Aloha Stadium, that it's it's starting to get back to the flow where people want to get there. And not only that, this is a team that prior to this year won 18 games in two years. You went to a conference championship. You went to two separate bowl games. This is a team that is getting its flojo back, not only just in this moment, but as a program. UH is coming back to the top. I mean, when you talk about the top of Mount West conference in football, you got to mention UH now because, A, they just went to a conference championship, but, B, when you look at the schedule going forward and what they've managed to do through Cole McDonald and Chevin Cordero's tandem, through the Rolo uh, era and all of that, Hawaii is getting itself back to a point where they need to know it, it, it's important that they have to get these games won and they got to get people in that stadium if they're going to do that. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And it's a slippery slope because, I mean, obviously, um, I, I don't think anyone watching what happened in Notre Dame condones or thinks it was a oh, good yeah, idea. No. Um, and, but it does create of, oh, wow, people can be there, obviously, because they're doing this stupid thing of rushing the field and um so why can't you do that here and so obviously i mean it, it, it takes a lot of people way smarter than you and i to figure out how to do this because the safety protocols that would require having fans in the in the stadium i mean obviously that it's going to be an increase to what they're usually doing at the aloha stadium so there's a lot that needs to be done. But with that being said, yeah, I mean, we've, we see it being done in other places. Um, there's probably more people at Costco than there are, you know, that would be at Aloha stadium if you're able to, <laughs> to work in the uh, social distancing <laughs> at, at the stadium. But with all that being said, obviously decisions are being made for the health and safety of our community. Oh, no, no, most definitely. It's difficult, but you know, more, more important it's really just what UH has gotten going. The safety protocols, you know, that's obviously have to be put in place, but it's really just for these players. I mean, when you see them, I, I like I said, I felt for them seeing an empty Aloha Stadium, you know, and being that Aloha Stadium holds 50,000. I mean, even if you look at Boise State, their stadium only holds like 32 to 33,000. So there's a lot of space in there. So even in the realms of safety, I think UH is definitely in a good position where they can attempt to get it done. Of course, we don't want to jeopardize anybody's safety. And I personally don't believe that if anybody actually feels that they are jeopardizing themselves and they're going to come down to Aloha Stadium. But at the same time, when, like you say, they played against Wyoming, who had approximately 1,100, I believe, fans there. And then Wyoming wins 31 to 7. It kind of lets you know, even if it's only a little bit or just a little small sample, fans definitely are a part of the game. And if there is a safe and, you know, logical way to get them into Aloha Stadium, then I'm all for it. If it can't be done, then like you said, we don't want to jeopardize anybody's health. But this is a team that is on the uprise and they definitely want the fans there to keep the juice going, especially when you see the schedule they got going forward, because it is a grueling schedule. 
Yeah, and if there's anything we learned about 2020 so far is that it is an absolute fluid situation. So who knows? There's a there's a handful of weeks left here in the season, and it's not out of the realm of possibilities for sure. Well, that does it for our Bose Football Final mailbox for this week. Again, be sure to find me on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and send in any questions or comments that you want us to get to here in our upcoming shows. But now let's talk about the upcoming game. The Rainbow Warriors at 2-1 and one face off against 2-1 and one San Diego State. And as we've been explaining all season long, this is a wild 2020 in the Mountain West Conference. There, there are no divisions. It's the top two teams based on winning percentage that will play in the December 19th Mountain West Conference Championship game. And as we stand three weeks into the season, Nevada and San Jose State are at the top. So this is craziness. I mean, I don't know how many people would have predicted that coming into the year, but I ask you this right off the bat. Is this already in, in week four, is this a must-win game for the Rainbow Warriors? You, you know, it was funny. Before the season started, somebody asked me, uh, which games do you highlight? Oh, it's actually Allen. Uh, he said, which game should I highlight for the season? And you remember what I told him? All of them. It's only yeah. eight. But yeah. now, with Nevada and San Jose being at the top, they're both on your schedule. Boise State is still undefeated in conference, although they lost to BYU. They're on your schedule. And then there's a one-loss SDSU that you have to face next week. So in all honesty, every game going forward is pretty much playoff style pressure for getting back to the championship. Every team that's in the top of this Mountain West without divisions, you're going to have to face. They're going to be on your schedule or they already were on your schedule. So going forward, I think every single game is paramount. I know, you know, they don't want you, you don't want to put too much pressure on any one certain game. But now that you're talking championship and championship contention, every single game is important, starting with SDSU next week. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you start looking at because of the tiebreakers, right? I mean, right now, as you sit, Fresno State and Hawaii has the same record, but Hawaii has the edge on Fresno State because of that victory. Wyoming will have the edge on the University of Hawaii. And so once you start getting to that two-loss category, you're looking at two losses and you lost the two teams in conference who have you on the tiebreaker more than likely. So those are really big. And the interesting thing with the Aztecs is that this is a solid team. They have killed recruiting over the last decade in the Mountain West Conference. Although a new coach in Brady Hokies coming in from a generation ago as the head coach at San Diego State, and they're running a similar system. It's power football. It's strong linebacker play. So when you look at the challenge that lies ahead for this UH football team, yet knowing that they are 10-point underdogs, I, I should add, that, that the Vegas line open as 10-point underdogs that the University of Hawaii is, but has the edge mentally, you almost feel like, because they have been able to beat San Diego State as underdogs before, and really more times than not here over the last five years. So uh, do you think that the Rainbow Warriors have a mental edge in this game entering? Uh, I think they definitely do. Um, like you said, over the last couple of years, Hawaii's got the better end of San Diego, not to mention they came off of a very sloppy loss against San Jose State, a game that I'm more than positive San Diego felt they should have won. Not only that, they're playing on a semi-neutral field in Carson. They're not actually going to be playing in San Diego. I don't believe they're actually going to have any fans. And when I watch the film on them, you know, this is not the same Rocky Long super 
power eye, you know, elite, almost four or five star running back. Granted, that was never their ranking coming out of high school, but he had an eye for talent. This is a team now that looks like they want to spread it more. It looks like they have to get the timing and they had some issues with that against San Jose. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a tremendous mental edge, but I don't see Hawaii walking in with the same sort of, you know, uh, heavy heartbeat that maybe my guys or guys before has had to walk in knowing we, we facing a mean SDSU team. So I think uh, Hawaii should definitely know this is a game they can win. Yeah, and it's a big game. As we mentioned, Mountain West Conference, every single game has title implications on the line. And the Rainbow Warriors and Aztecs will face off this Saturday. The game is at 11 in the morning Hawaii time, but coverage on Spectrum Sports pay-per-view starts at 1030. You will be there. I will be there. Kavika Hallams and Nadi Lawa will all be in the Mililani studio uh, providing the pregame, halftime, and postgame. Robert Kikala and Rich Miano will be calling that game. Uh, how excited are you about this one, bro? I'm super excited. I didn't think there was going to be football on the islands at all. And the fact that we got it, I get to cover it. And like I said, whether people want to take it or not, it's playoffs from now on. You want to get back to the conference title game, you have to win every game going forward. And being that you just came from a, a conference title game, that's what they should expect. So I can't wait to see y'all on Saturday up in Milani. You know how we going to do. We're going to hold it down. We're going to have a good time. And I'm super excited because now they done let Shevin go. They got this defense moving. Let's go. What's today? It's need Saturday. need to hurry up. It's only uh, Tuesday, hey, you, Monday. Whatever you know, day it is, Saturday need to get here faster. You know RJ's ready when you start hearing those claps, man, because you don't break them out all the time. You don't break them out all the time. You don't overdo it. You're like, man, when this clap comes out, I'm yeah, ready. Yeah, when it's clap time, we, we <laughs> try, it's time to set the tone. All right, man. Rainbow Warriors and Aztecs Saturday. Coverage begins at 1030 in the morning on Spectrum Sports Pay-Per-View. RJ Hollis, my man. Go find him on Twitter. He's brand new to Instagram, too, so go find him. I am uh, on IG. I yeah. Uh oh, there goes the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> All right, RJ. <laughs> thanks a lot for joining us, man. Uh, again, everybody, catch Bo's football final every Monday at KHON2.com and everywhere you download podcasts. Hit the subscribe button on all those platforms. Every Monday. All of them. Spotify, Apple Music, Twitter, Instagram. Rob DeMello. Google Rob DeMello and just follow everything that's safe. Yeah, I, I don't do that. I'm afraid. I'm afraid <laughs> of what may come up. All right, RJ. Hey, thanks a lot, man. Thanks, everybody, for joining us here on Bo's Football Final. Have a great week. We'll catch you next time. Aloha.